Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. When efforts using existing authorities proved ineffective, the advice we received was to invoke the Emergencies Act. That is uh, the voice of Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino uh, talking about uh, the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, a decision that is the subject of, of course, uh, an inquiry, also work being done by something called the Special Joint Committee on the Declaration of Emergency. Uh, This comes along with invoking the act is that there is this after the fact scrutiny as there needs to be. Uh, This is quite a sweeping use of government power. And if and when it is used, it is imperative that we understand why it was used and, frankly, whether it was appropriate to use the powers of the Emergencies Act in the first place. Of course, as you know, the Emergencies Act was invoked to deal with the, uh, I guess, broadly speaking, the convoy protests, which had set up shop in the nation's capital, also affected some border crossings uh, in various parts of the country. Now, I wasn't uh, a fan or a supporter of, of the protests. But that doesn't automatically follow that it made sense to use the Emergencies Act. I think part of what the government has tried to do here is, is to muddy the waters a little bit and suggest that if there were concerns around these protests, therefore it made sense to invoke the Emergencies Act. But that's not true, first of all, and that's not what this is about. This isn't about the merits of the protest. This is about how and why the government came to the conclusion to use the Emergencies Act. Now, that clip of Marco Mendicino was from April, April 26, to be exact. He was before this committee. And as you heard in that clip, Marco Mendicino seems to be implying, and frankly, flat out saying, that they were asked by police to use the Emergencies Act, to invoke this act. And if that wasn't clear in the first clip I played, let me just play a couple more uh, from that same day of testimony, April 26. We invoked the act because it was the advice of nonpartisan professional law enforcement that existing authorities were ineffective at the time to restore public safety at all of the ports of entry that you mentioned, Ms. Ben-Dayan. And that was why we took the careful step, the thoughtful step of invoking the act, and it worked. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, one more here from the minister. Can I infer from your response that all jurisdictions uh, necessary, provincial, municipal and federal, were coordinated in their advice to invoke the act? Um, I, I would say that there was a very strong consensus that we needed to invoke. And I would, uh, again, um, offer that the Canadian Association of the Chiefs of Police the Ontario Association, um, the Canadian Association, uh, law enforcement was was um, was very strong what, what in its. What caused the short of unanimity to make it consensus? Who wasn't? Well, I, look, I I don't want to speak uh, for every last serving member uh, of, of law enforcement, but there was a very strong consensus that we needed to invoke the act. 
Okay, so I, I, I don't know. It couldn't be any clearer. Why did the federal government invoke the Emergencies Act? The public safety minister uh, is, is saying because the police asked for it. Now, as Canadians try to understand why the government used this power, that, that might make sense at some level. And I think people are maybe a little more sympathetic to police than necessary those uh, in, in cabinet making these decisions, right? The police versus the politicians. But even if police did ask for this, that's not the threshold either. There's a specific threshold that the government needs to meet, and it's not, did the police ask for it? So you could argue it's a little bit of a cop pardon the pun, but at least it's, it's an explanation and maybe one that, that the public could sympathize with. The police felt they needed these tools. The government acquiesced. Here's the problem. The police have been clear that they did not ask for the Emergencies Act to be used. The RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, before this committee, uh, the now former, I guess, interim police chief of Ottawa, Steve Bell, before this committee, were both clear that they did not ask for the Emergencies Act to be used. So it's the public safety minister in trying to craft a narrative here, uh, fudging facts. In other words, is the public safety minister, well, lying? Yesterday, we talked about the call from the uh, chief electoral officer of Canada. Uh, He felt that we needed to have some legislation to prohibit the spreading of disinformation, misinformation during election campaigns, a deliberate spreading of misinformation, uh, a deliberate spreading of misinformation that's designed to misinform Canadians. In other words, you know what you're saying is untrue, yet you're saying it anyway because you're trying to convince people of something. Well, isn't that what the, the minister is doing here? Isn't that what the government is doing right here? By giving us facts that are not true in order to try to convince us of something that isn't true. Knowingly spreading misinformation. The police did not ask for the Emergencies Act to be used. The public safety minister is telling us that they did ask for it to be used. How do we square that circle? Well, that brings us to the testimony yesterday before the Special Joint Committee on the Declaration of Emergency. Deputy Minister Rob Stewart was one of the witnesses before this committee and was asked that very question. The public safety minister says the police asked for the Emergencies Act to be used. The police say we did not ask for the Emergencies Act to be used. And according to Deputy Minister Rob Stewart, we all just misunderstood what the minister was saying. I'm going to I'm going to read you two quotes from your minister. At the recommendation of police, we invoked the Emergencies Act to protect Canadians. That's quote number one. Quote number two. The invocation of the Emergencies Act was only put forward after police officials told us they needed this special power. End quote. We have heard from police officials at this committee and at other committees in this parliament. To date, none of them have indicated that they've actually asked for the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So who actually asked for it? My understanding is there is a um, a misunderstanding of the minister's words. The minister was was alluding to the fact that police were consulted and were, in, not just in the case of the RCMP, but other police, indicating, as we've dis- as was discussed in the prior session, well, that their powers were not now, effective. And they, therefore, you, you asked for more power. Dur- 
look, I don't want to go back and play those three clips of Marco Mendicino again. I don't want to insult your intelligence by pretending as though or acting as though you forgot what you just heard, you know, two or three minutes ago. But insulting your intelligence is what the deputy minister did just there. Now, there were two options for him, I guess. He could have said, no, the cops are lying. They did ask for us to use the Emergencies Act, and I don't know why the hell they're saying otherwise. Or to somehow pretend like the minister didn't say what he said. That somehow we're misunderstanding what the minister said when the minister said uh, that the police asked for the Emergencies Act to be invoked. So they went for that option. I guess there's a whole other world of problems if you go and accuse the RCMP commissioner or the police chief in Ottawa of lying. But you still got a problem on your hands when you're trying to argue that uh, the minister didn't say what we all heard him say. So we've got a a bit of a problem here. Look, I, I think the government wants to move on from this. By and large, I think the convoy protests, which dominated the discourse in this country for days and weeks on end, it's dropped off. People have have moved on to other things. We're talking about other issues. But this isn't about the protests. This is about the government's decision to invoke for the first time the Emergency Act and the process that's baked in to ensure that there is proper scrutiny of whether the government did so appropriately whether it met the threshold of an emergency, why they chose to use this power. And if the government is being dishonest with Canadians, that is a problem. Regardless of what you think of the protests, and frankly, regardless of what you think of the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, you know, the end doesn't justify the means here. And it suggests to me that if they're being dishonest in their explanation, that maybe they don't have an actual good explanation which is in and of itself problematic. One other note, by the way, from yesterday's testimony before this uh, committee, uh, another deputy minister, Francois Day, was uh, testifying. And it, it spoke to the question of, well, again, look, why did you need this tool, given that there were other tools available to police to deal with the various aspects of the, 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 uh, the protest? And here's what he said to that. Can you state categorically, yes or no, that the government exercised every legislative option before invoking the Emergencies Act? Um, I can't provide a yes or no answer to your question because um, the the test is not uh, whether we exercised every legislation in the country. The test is whether those laws were being used effectively to deal with the emergency, and our view is that they were not. This is a bit of a footnote to the question of uh, whether police asked for the act to be used and what the public safety minister has said, but it's another example here uh, of government officials not being honest with Canadians. Uh, National security law expert uh, Dr. Leah West uh, from Carleton University, who's been on this program many times, pointed this out. The deputy minister either doesn't understand what the law says or he's being dishonest about what the law said. The question absolutely is whether other laws could have been used. He suggests that uh, it was about whether they were using those laws effectively. The act itself is pretty clear. For the purposes of this act, a national emergency is an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature that cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. Maybe it's a technicality. Maybe ultimately it's a bit of a moot point. Uh, The deputy minister doesn't quite understand 
what the law says. Was misrepresenting what the law says seems important, though. And like I say, it just goes to this this bigger problem where we're not getting straight answers from the government. Frankly, we're not even getting honest answers from the government or, for that matter, honest explanations. The definition of an emergency is a situation that cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. So the question to the deputy minister were all of these other tools tried. And he says that's not the test. Well, it is. It's become pretty clear that, you know, there's there's some uh, problems right now affecting uh, airline travel in this country, in particular, some problems affecting Canada's busiest airport, uh, Pearson Airport in Toronto. Uh, Yesterday with the Canadian Airports Council uh, calling on the federal government to uh, help address the situation. In order to support this industry's economic recovery and compete globally, Canada must align with the international community and join the list of over 50 countries that have already removed vaccine mandates and COVID protocols for travel. Uh, that this doesn't fully explain the situation at uh, Pearson Airport in particular or other airports more generally, but it's certainly a part of the problem. Uh, but a lot of factors that have conspired to, that have led to a real mess. And so it's something that, that many thousands of travelers can, can attest to. Uh, but it took a high-profile uh, traveler in that uh, lot to really call attention to it. Ryan Whitney, a uh, former NHL player, uh, well-known uh, podcaster, broadcaster, was making his way or trying to make his way from Edmonton back to Boston. And uh, that included a stop at uh, Pearson Airport, a stop that turned into uh, sort of a, a mini trip of its own, basically trapped for more than a day at Pearson Airport amid what sounded like just complete and utter chaos. Now, if you missed it uh, from earlier in the week, uh, here's a snippet from uh, one of the videos that Ryan Whitney posted on his ordeal. So I had Edmonton to Toronto yesterday. I landed around 3. I then had Toronto to Boston at 8.30. Customs was about three hours. Got through. Flight canceled from Toronto to Boston. All right. At this point, now I go and I see there is a 400-person line with two Air Canada workers. There's a million canceled flights, so everyone's just panicking. So I waited in that line about six hours. At near the end of the line, by the way, you know how much my feet hurt? Near the end of the line, they closed it. They just said, oh, you have to go somewhere else. We had to re-enter Canada. We had to go through Canadian customs. So by the time I finally see someone from Air Canada, it's 1 a.m. I said, can I just get my bags? I had a ride to Buffalo all set up, and I had a JetBlue flight from Buffalo. I just need to get out of this country, out of this airport. This is the worst airport on earth. I'm telling you, there's no other airport like this. So they say, no, 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 you can't have your bags. You, you, your bags are already like in the middle of no man's land. You can't have your bags. So we have a 8.50 flight for you from Toronto to Boston for this morning. This is last, this is at 1 a.m. Okay, I'd be here at 5 a.m., they said. So I got here at 4.55. I wanted to be five minutes early. So I wanted to be three hours and 55 minutes early. I get here, this woman says, oh, we booked you actually on a flight from here to Montreal and then Montreal to Boston, but that leaves in 50 minutes and you can't make it. They never sent me an email. They just, I, I, I started laughing. I mean, what are you, you going to do? It was either that or, like, cry. So now I'm on a... So now I'm on a 10 a.m. 
but there's nobody really around the gate. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm so in shock at this place. It is the biggest disgrace known to man. Now, he eventually did get to Boston, um, but uh, I think there's still some some hard feelings about it. In fact, the uh, Spittin' Chicklets podcast crew uh, are now selling Pearson Airport socks T-shirts, which may prove to be popular. Like I say, I mean, he was one of thousands dealing with this whole mess at Pearson over the weekend. And, and this is not a new situation. I mean, obviously, as Canada's busiest airport, uh, there are some uh, circumstances really specific to all of the traffic there. Uh, but clearly, we've got some issues to sort out. A former Canadian airline executive says uh, that this is something that the federal government didn't prepare for. They were caught flat-footed. And we've now got a real mess on our hands. So how do we fix this? How did we get into this mess in the first place? Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon. Duncan D. Uh, is a former chief operating officer at Air Canada. Uh, Duncan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, like I say, I mean, it takes someone high profile, I guess, to, to really call attention to a problem. But what uh, Ryan Whitney experienced is pretty similar to what thousands of other people have been experiencing in recent weeks. So, first of all, what's your sense of how it got so bad? Well, look, I raised the alarm on this on the 2nd of April. And as a former airline executive, what struck me was lineups shouldn't be that bad in April or May in Canada. Yeah. And so I... Uh, tweeted a photo on the 2nd of April to say, like, this is not right. And as a result of that, I started receiving messages from travelers and former colleagues in the airlines who were saying, look, it's, uh, you know, what you tweeted on the 2nd of April is still happening, and that was sometime in mid-April, and it continued on, and and this is what we've got now. And so I'm really glad that this viral video got uh, over 2 million views now because it seems to have finally gotten the minister's attention. So to what extent can, can we point a finger of blame at the federal government here, uh, either by decisions they made that, that contributed to this or even just their, their inaction in trying to deal with the situation? Well, it, you, if you look at the fact that yesterday um, internal documents from the Canadian Air Transport Security Agency were made available uh, and it indicated that way back in January, uh, the Air Security Agency knew that the traffic uh, would be three to four times greater in 2022 versus 2021. And the fact that uh, they're only, they only started hiring so that uh, the new screeners, uh, security screeners, would show up at the end of June, uh, you, you've got to wonder, you know, what they were possibly thinking. And, you know, the, the, the screeners arriving in the end of June is a little bit too late. I mean, we're talking about uh, brand new rookie uh, screeners uh, who have never worked uh, at an airport before, suddenly being thrust into a situation where it's going to be the, the peak of the peak. You know, this is this is like um, in the airline uh, business, this is like the Super Bowl um, going on for the entire month of July and August. So the staffing issues that some of the airlines are going through, why are, why are they experiencing that? The, the staffing issues at uh, the airlines are what's being experienced in virtually every sector of the economy, mm-hmm. where you've had uh, individuals, you know, some economists have called it the great resignation. Yeah. Well, I think in, some, in the airline industry, it was the great retirement. 
because you had a lot of senior pilots, senior air crew that look at, looked at the, the depths of the pandemic and decided, look, this, this is it for me. I'm going to take my retirement and, and try to enjoy life for a change. Um, but so there, there have definitely been shortages in the airline industry, but nowhere near what's happened with the uh, Air Transport Security Agency or uh, Canada Border Services Agency. And a lot of the issues we're seeing at both uh, CATSA and the CBSA are self-inflicted. It's not, this is not a criticism of the, the folks who are working there. They're doing mm-hmm. as, as good a job as they possibly can. But, you know, the federal government imposed pandemic-era um, con- uh, travel conditions on international travelers coming into Canada, and the airports have estimated that it's taking each individual traveler four times longer to be processed by a, by a CBSA customs officer um, every day. So just because they've designed this process that's taking four times longer than the average pre-pandemic um, inspection of an international customer, and now, I mean, unless they increase staffing by 400%, then you're obviously going to have line- lineups. It's, this is a mathematical question. And that all trickles down, right? So if you've got a delay unloading passengers in, into the customs area, uh, and, and then that affects how quickly they can process, that aff- affects all, all kinds of aspects, right? So it, it really starts to, to ripple through throughout the whole system. Yeah, in the airline industry, we have a term called cascading delay. Um, and the difficulty that we're now facing in Canada is this is a cascading delay that's been going on now for 67 days, at least. I mean, I first noticed that 67 days ago, so it might have been uh, happening even before then. But it's been going on nonstop since that time, and it's just cascading and going on and on and on. There are not enough spare aircraft, um, staff, crew, uh, counter space, uh, gates to make up for the uh, delays that have been caused by the federal government at the largest airports in the country. So what could be done to address this, at least even in the short term, do you think? Well, immediately, as I mentioned earlier, on the uh, on the inbound arrival side, um, if it's taken um, CBSA officers four times longer to process each traveler because of the pandemic travel inspections that they're doing, if you eliminate that, that's an automatic savings of time. You, you immediately overnight, if that ended, you'd have an improvement in the experience. It may not be perfect, but it's better than what it is today. So that's on the arrival side. On the departure side, I'm not sure if listeners know this, but you know your, your flight attendants and pilots, when they leave uh, an airport uh, anywhere in Canada, they have to go to the exact same security inspection that an ordinary traveler does. So there are special um, inspection areas in various airports, including Pearson, where you've got security screeners who are dedicated just for the flight crews who go in and out of the airports all day long. If you ended this uh, requirement, which which doesn't occur in many countries around the world, um, you automatically have spare screeners that can suddenly be deployed into the regular lines that's that would help there's also the trusted traveler programs you know canadians voluntarily provide their personal information to the federal government and also the u.s government under a program called nexus in the u.s nexus members actually um, enjoy expedited screening because they provided all their background information to the government who've done the background checks and they know that these are low-risk travelers if the if canada uh, began, uh, launched 
a expedited screening for these trusted travelers, there again, you would have um, extra screeners that you could deploy to the regular screening lines. Just to give you an example, this morning I was at LaGuardia Airport, one of the busiest airports in the U.S. It was a very crowded uh, weekday morning in you know the, the, the financial capital of the, of the United States. The airport was packed. I'm a trusted traveler, and I went through the process in 94 seconds. From the, from the time I, I, I got to the security line all the way to the time I exited, and I was probably being slow in hitting my stopwatch. So, you know, I think that at the end of the day, a lot of what's happening with the airports in Canada are self-inflicted. A government has chosen to do certain things which have caused significant delays, and if they wanted to, they could actually fix them. Not going to fix itself, is it? Sorry? It's not going to fix itself, is it? It's, it, it's not, it not only it's not going to fix itself, it's going to get worse. Um, right? The fact that, as I said earlier, the fact that there were lines forming in April when Canadians are not traveling in large numbers other than Easter, um, you know, that was already, uh, my spidey senses were already triggered when I saw those lines on April 2nd at Toronto Airport, a Saturday morning in April. And there was a two to three hour line to clear security. People were missing their flights. And a May, a typical April and May day has 12% fewer travelers than a typical June day. A typical July and August day has between 22 and 25% more travelers than there is in a typical April and May day. So it's, it's going to get worse unless the government figures this out in the next two and a half weeks and the clock is ticking then it's going to be an even bigger mess in a couple of weeks' time. Really interesting perspective. We'll leave it there, Duncan. Thanks for your insight on this, and I appreciate you making some time for us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All the best. Uh, there you go, some perspective from uh, Duncan D., who has um, you know, spent many years as an executive in the airline industry, former chief operating officer at Air Canada, uh, someone who was sounding the alarm about this a few months ago. Uh, that we've got a problem on our hands, and, and clearly it's, it's got worse. In fact, as he says, could still get worse even still. It's now past the 100-day mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and, and uh, the end to all of this uh, appears uncertain. But this much has been clear so far. The vaunted Russian war machine was not quite as advertised. The notion that you know Russia was going to uh, make its way to Kiev and conquer the Ukrainian capital in days, clearly that didn't happen. Uh, Russian troops have certainly suffered numerous setbacks. They have been bogged down. Uh, they've struggled to make progress. That's not to say that uh, Russia might not prevail in some respects, but it certainly did not go according to plan. Similarly, the vaunted Russian propaganda machine, disinformation uh, machine, has seemed uh, somewhat less than advertised. And obviously, we've seen it at work in the past. Uh, But just, uh, you know, Russia's failure to really build any kind of a plausible narrative uh, around this uh, invasion, uh, it was pretty apparent right from the get-go. But that hasn't stopped Russia from trying to shape the narrative. And as we look at the the conversation in Canada, and in particular on social media, uh, to what extent are we seeing any of that foreign influence? To what extent is Russia attempting to sway the narrative in Western countries? A new study from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary takes a closer look at that. In a very methodical approach that involved collecting more than 6 million tweets, 
to try to monitor and measure Russian influence operations on social media. So joining us to talk about what this uh, study found, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, one of its authors, uh, J.C. Boucher, Assistant Professor of the School of Public Policy in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Professor, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So uh, six million tweets, that's a big number. But, you know, when you try to understand what's going on in, in social media, maybe you need to cast a, a pretty wide net. So talk a bit about what, what prompted this in the first place. Sure. Uh, so, uh, like, essentially, uh, like, it's, uh, through the University of Calgary and the School of Public Policy, we're building a capacity and a, and a capability in data analytics, essentially using, you know, new and interesting methods to deal with policy issues. And my own group focuses more on national defense and foreign policy stuff. And one of the things we've been interesting for a long time is how, you know, diasporas are mobilizing, mobilizing on social media and how it impacts conversations in Canada. So back in November, so we've established links and co- collaborations with people working in national defense, global affairs, NATO, other Eastern European countries, and around the world. And back in November 2021, as we were talking to partners, some of them kind of highlighted that you know they were expecting a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and they were unsure how you know the information machine would kind of shape, try to shape narratives in Western countries. And and at that point, they said like, hey, it would be good if a group actually started the project right now. And that's what we've done. So back in November 2021, we started to kind of just collect data on Ukraine in, in, in Russian, Ukrainian, and English, and French, and kind of try to track down what was said on social media in the in the expectation that if there was a war, then we would be ready and have a data set. And that's what happened. So when in February things happening, we already had a, a, a data set, you know, collecting. And, and we keep on collecting data as we speak. Every second right now that people are tweeting about Russia and Ukraine, my, my computer grabs these and puts it in a data set that we can analyze later on. Very interesting. So when we talk about Canadian social media, I mean, how do we we quantify that. I mean, social media doesn't exist in, you know, within borders necessarily, but obviously we talk about Canadians digesting and posting and sharing social media. I mean, we're talking about Canadians, people physically present in this country, but what do we mean by Canadian social media? Uh, that's that's an interesting, and you're right. It's it's a fuzzy concept, especially in an environment that ha- is, you know, global and, and international. So, so essentially what we've done is we've collect all these tweets out of out of the API out of Twitter and and part of the information that comes out of these tweets that comes in our data set are location so essentially people saying I'm a Canadian or you know setting themselves up in 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 Canada in any town in Canada and we have a way we've built a way to kind of filter that through and kind of shape and identify those who are Canadians and kind of build a Canadian data set. From there, what we do is we look at how Canadians are engaging with other Canadians, for example, replying or liking or sharing or retweeting other accounts, but also how they're engaging with international accounts, accounts that are not in Canada, they're in the U.S., in Europe, and we can see how they're engaging themselves. So our data set not only has you know, most prominent Canadians account, but also all the international accounts that are interacting with Canadians in that, you know, that in that social media space. Right. So does it seem then like there's an attempt to directly speak to Canadians to try to influence the, the debate and the conversation in Canada? So, 
so that's that, that's a good question. And, and what we see is essentially two things. So when we kind of identify accounts associated with Russian propaganda, we find essentially that there's kind of two vectors of influence that are foreign. The first one comes from the U.S. So what we're seeing is that prominent influencers, especially on the right in the U.S., are promoting or pushing, you know, Russian propaganda. And I, I think here of like, Tulsi Gabbard or Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. or Candace Owens. And these people are prominent on social media and they tweet and they create content, you know, legitimizing Russia's invasions in, in, in Ukraine. It's not at all clear if they're just useful idiots or they co-opted by the Russian, you know, information machine or they're just, yeah, mm-hmm. or they just like, you know, benefit from it. And what we see is that those accounts are getting retweeted a lot in Canada, mostly on the right uh, amongst Canadians. We also see other accounts mostly tied to Russian state propaganda machine, RT.com, and also the Chinese propaganda machine. And these ones are also kind of retweeted in Canada. So it is clear to our sense that there's like a Russian and Chinese kind of coordination and attempt to influence and promote their narratives in the Canadian Twitter sphere. From the American side, it seems more like a backlash and a side influence of what is happening in the U.S., that's interesting. So we look at these these narratives. So whether it's sources from Russia or sources sympathetic to Russia, what is the narrative they're trying to advance here? I mean, part of it is to try to justify the invasion, obviously, but it seems to go much further than that. It does. Um, so really what they're trying to do is, is, is sway and influence public opinion and public perception of the invasion. And using, you know, machine learning and AI to kind of read all of these tweets, because 6 million is out of our reach, we we kind of find that there's like five broad narratives. The first one and the most important one, and the one that, that the Kremlin pushes harder on, is the notion that, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine because NATO was expanding eastward, right? It's this notion that NATO expansion caused, you know, the invasion in Ukraine. Despite the fact that NATO is not in Ukraine, uh, that always been like the kind of major argument. The second one is the notion that NATO is using Ukraine as a proxy for war. So NATO has been aggressive against Russia and is using Ukraine as to wage a war, a proxy war against uh, Russia. So it's forced Russia's hand to invade Ukraine. The third one, which doesn't have a lot of traction in Canada, is the notion that there's Nazis in, in Ukraine and the Russian intervention is there to denazify the, the Ukrainian regime. And then, interestingly, there's like two other kind of smaller clusters, which we piggybacks mostly on misinformation and on mistrust in institution, news media, expert government, and also a criticism of the Tudor government, but more specifically on the Tudor government's support of the Ukrainian regime. So people in Canada criticizing uh, to, uh, the, gov- the Trudeau government of supporting Ukraine and saying, like, we should just own our own business and not get involved in that in, uh, intervention or invasion. Well, which maybe speaks to what the, the ultimate goal of all of this is. Is it to, to convince Canadians, to convince our elected officials to uh, back off in terms of sanctions against Russia, or to be more sympathetic uh, of Russia? What, what are they hoping to achieve in all of that? Uh, so in, in the grand scheme of things, what we've seen and what we kind of knew before it happened is that because of our large Ukrainian population and diaspora, any kind of influence operations promoting the invasion of Ukraine would, would fight against a, a broader kind of, you know, like group. And also the Ukrainians have a better story, whereas they're the victims of this aggression. So 
like the, the the attempt to kind of sway public opinion toward Russia was always kind of a lopsided attempt. However, really the uh, like the way the Russians think about propaganda and the way they think about information warfare is that it's a continuating element. They always do it. It's always part of their machine. They always try to exploit, influence, promote the kind of narrative that they're, they're, it's their own views of things, and using internal dissension within a state to kind of maximize, amplify their views. Sometimes it's to, you know, push back, sow dissension, create polarization, and essentially exploiting every nooks and crannies they can find to erode democratic resiliency in Canada, and somehow on the long run having a better impact. So it's you should see this more as a long-term effect, right? They were they were there during the Crimean crisis, during the COVID-19 crisis, during the Freedom Convoy, and now they're doing it and they're just like essentially recreating and repackaging things to make our society more spiteful and more polarized. At the same time, I mean, you know, in Canada, there's a pretty broad political consensus uh, about supporting uh, Ukraine and countering Russian aggression. Public opinions there, too. Is it fair to say yeah. that these efforts have failed or, or what can we conclude about that? So you're right. Like, like if if. If we look at our, at our data, right, our data shows what? That about 75% of the accounts we see on social media talking about Ukraine and Canada are in the pro-Ukrainian narrative side, right? So you're right. Most of Canadians are on that side. What's troubling is that, is that some of this narrative and some of this disinformation actually has traction with some groups in Canada. For example, we find that, you know, the rebel news and, and, peop- and Maxime Bernier and the leader of the, the People's Party are, are in the pro-Russian narrative group. So you could think that people who follow these political parties, these people who follow these alternative media, are actually more susceptible to Russian disinformation. So there's a fringe, there's a significant mm-hmm. group in Canada who are more exposed than others to the risk of disinformation. And that's spills over all sorts of policy issues that goes beyond just Russia. So so I think I think we, we can A say like, hey, we're pretty good so far, but also there's elements of our society that are like getting radicalizing themselves, getting more and more on the fringe, believing more and more in conspiracy theories, believing more and more that the government and the media are against them. And that's the troubling part. Those are the, the, the citizens and people who are voting for, you know, people. They're the ones marching in streets to oppose certain kinds of things. And, and that becomes a concern. Is it a national security concern in the context of you know, foreign interference or foreign disinformation? I mean, how do we view it? Oh, that's a really good question. So um, the way the government of Canada sees this is all over the place. And to be honest, the government of Canada right now is not really ready to face, uh, you know, influence operations. Technically, Global Affairs Canada is responsible for tracking or at least understanding foreign interference. I think in the grand scheme of things, we have to have a better conversation in Canada about the impact of social media in our in our democracy. Clearly, all the research shows that social media interactions have a real-world effect and, and, and might sow dissension and might create, you know, people, you know, mistrusting institutions. Uh, it might marginalize and radicalize some people, and that we know. Um, and, and somehow, right now, we still don't have a kind of societal, society-wide conversation around that. I think there's all sorts of questions around platform regulations and what respect, you know, big social media platforms are responsible for doing this. There's also a mini conversation we should have about, you know, should people be accountable for sowing misinformation on social media? 
maybe we don't really care if my aunt Karen sends me mis like you know misinformed tweets on Russian intervention. Maybe we care though that a prominent influencer actually does it and benefits financially for it. Maybe they should be accountable for what they're doing in the social media space. We have to find the norms and regulations and legal environment that actually makes our society and our democracy a little bit safer for everyone to interact into. Very interesting. Well, the study is up at policyschool.ca. Uh, J.C. Boucher, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. What? It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. All the best. Uh, J.C. Boucher of the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, one of the co-authors of this study on disinformation, the Russian-Ukrainian war, and Canadian social media. Part of a bigger issue we've been talking about, you know, in particular Chinese uh, influence operations, uh, Russian influence operations, you know, the different ways in which Canadians or certain expat communities are being targeted by, you know, what are clearly our adversaries. Well, as you're well aware, inflation is a major concern in Canada at the moment, uh, one that the Bank of Canada is getting increasingly aggressive in trying to tackle. Uh, the Bank of Canada has already, uh, on a few occasions now, increased its uh, trend-setting rate, and we're likely to see future interest rate increases. Because, obviously, inflation has not slowed down, the Bank of Canada seems to believe there is room to increase interest rates even further. But are they right in that assessment? Obviously, the bank has to to try to gauge the state of the Canadian economy to assess how far it can go in interest rate hikes. Remember, the reason rates were kept so low for so long was to try to stimulate economic growth. So how strong is the current state of the economy? Can the economy handle additional interest rate increases? Well, there's maybe reason for the bank to, to be concerned on that point. Already, the interest rate increases we've seen have cut into the housing market. We've seen home sales decline month over month. Now, while some might welcome that in terms of maybe bringing some sanity back to housing prices, we're talking about an industry, we're talking about a sector, one that's pretty important in terms of the Canadian economy. So if we see the housing market uh, start to fall into a tailspin, is that something that could drag the rest of the economy uh, down with them? Well, that's the warning uh, in a new report from uh, our next guest, uh, Stephen Brown. is an economist uh, with Capital Economics and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so you're concerned about what we're already seeing in the housing market uh, since these interest rates have, have gone up and more capitaleconomics.com. Uh, people can find your latest notes. So what, what are you seeing in, in housing numbers that, that are causing concern for you? That's right. So we've now had um, home sales data for, for April and some of the sort of local city level data for May. And it looks like we've essentially seen double digit declines, percentage declines in home sales in both months. So home sales were very elevated to begin with, as you mentioned, obviously low interest rates had really propped up housing demand. Um, so that both declines have only taken home sales back to where, where they were just before the pandemic. But the big worry is obviously with the Bank of Canada continuing to raise interest rates quite aggressively, home sales will continue to decline. Uh, uh, and at the same time, um, so new listings are actually holding up a lot better. So there does seem to be quite a few a uh, large share of people that maybe bought investment properties during the pandemic who are now looking to sell those properties. So we, as economists, we talk about the, the ratio of home sales to new listings. And that's now pointing to, 
to outright price declines in some markets and to sort of a stagnation in prices at the national level already in May. And obviously, as, as we mentioned, that the Bank of Canada is going to keep raising interest rates. So it's pretty likely now we're going to see outright moderate price declines, at least. So house prices did start to fall at the national level um, in April, and we'll probably have done so again in May. Um, I would say, uh, obviously, for Alberta, there are some reasons to be a bit more optimistic for the balance of um, demand and supply looks far more positive than it does where I am in Ontario. This is really the, the danger markets at the moment are, are in places like Toronto, Vancouver, uh, rather than Alberta, which is really benefiting from higher commodity prices. Right. And presumably the bank is, is watching all of this, this data as it pertains to, to the housing market. So what's your sense of how they're interpreting it? Do, do they feel as though this is acceptable, this is a necessary correction, or that the economy can sustain this? What, what's your sense? Yes, it does seem at a moment that they feel it's a necessary correction. And I think, to be fair, that, that is, is the case, really. So when we look at consumer price inflation, almost 7% at the moment, a large share of that has been due to, to pretty elevated home demand. So new house price inflation feeds through to consumer price inflation. If we look at price inflation for things like household appliances and furniture, they're much stronger than average. So if we did have a slowdown in the housing market, it would help to to reduce some of that consumer price inflation as well. And that, that is ultimately the Bank of Canada's job. Um, what concerns me, though, is that it's really showing no sign of concern at all. So we had a Bank of Canada meeting last week, and the bank set out a, a speech which was almost 3,000 3, words long. And it, the housing market didn't even get a mention, even though we're seeing this sort of rapid rebalancing. And while it might be necessary that we've seen some rebalancing, the bank is sending now this message that it's prepared to raise the policy rate, so its main benchmark interest rate, to a level that's double what it was before the pandemic, even though we've had this surge in house prices in many parts of the country. And that raises the risk that what, what might be a necessary modest correction in housing actually morphs into something much greater. So there tends to be quite a long lag between say, home sales and then house prices and then broader housing activities, so things like new construction, renovation spending. Mm -hmm. So the risk is that because the bank is acting so quickly, it's raised its policy rate from 0.25% to 1.5% in just sort of four months and might well do the same again in the next four months. Because it's moving that quickly, it doesn't really have any time to see the full effects of its actions. So there's a risk that it just goes too far. And you know, because housing is so important for the economy, that if it does go too far, there's a real risk of a, a broader recession. And, and that's when, you know, even though the fundamentals in, in a place like Alberta might look positive, that's when we start becoming more concerned because if banks um, take a hit to their mortgage books and, and aren't prepared to lend anymore, I mean, it doesn't really matter if the long run fundamentals are, are good because if banks stop lending, then people just won't be able to buy uh, houses. Yeah. And that's obviously going to send prices lower. Let's talk about how important it is because, you know, the, the first quarter GDP numbers uh, show the economy grew at an annualized rate of 3.1%. So that's down from, from the fourth quarter of 2021, and, and that was below economist expectations. So not that the economy is necessarily in a precarious state at this point, but when we look at the importance of the housing market and, and how much of a drag could that be on those, those numbers if we start to see the, that, that sector suffer? Yeah, so at the moment, um, 
residential investment, which is basically the sum of um, home sales, new construction and renovation spending, that accounts for a pretty sizable 10% of a nominal GDP, so not adjusting for prices. So if, if we're right that there's going to be quite a large correction, that's going to drop back to around maybe 6-7% of GDP, which is a pretty sizable fall in the space of a couple of years. Um, the good news is because we've seen this big rise in commodity prices and obviously Canada being such a large commodities exporter, at the same time we are seeing export earnings pick up. So the overall impact isn't, isn't quite as large. But we see overall GDP growth slowing very sharply next year into 2023 so that it's, it's basically below the economy's long-run potential, as we say. And as a result of that, we start to see a pickup in, in the unemployment rate to, you know, not to a huge huge rate, but certainly from, from where it is now. Um, but then that's my forecast for that to happen is based on house prices uh, only falling by 10%. But with the bank now suggesting it might raise interest rates by much more than I'm forecasting, there's a risk that house prices fall even further. The number of new developments that are started drops off much more sharply than I expect. And that's when we start talking about the risk of a recession, particularly if banks start curtailing lending elsewhere in the economy as well. Well, that's a big concern is that we end up with the worst of both worlds in terms of uh, economic growth and inflation. And and I mean, I I think people are sympathetic that the Bank of Canada has has a difficult job, a difficult balance to try to strike at the moment in navigating all of this. But but that is one possible outcome here because inflation shows no signs of slowing down. But there is that, that risk that we could find ourselves in a recession. It definitely is. And the, the big challenge here really is that when we, when we think about the, how the bank tries to achieve its inflation target, it's essentially by limiting demand in the, in, in the Canadian economy specifically. Right. Obviously, it doesn't have any power over global conditions. Um, but when we look at what's driving consumer price inflation, services inflation, which is, is mainly linked to the strength of the domestic economy, is really quite low. It's even lower than it was before the pandemic. All the strength of consumer price inflation is coming from from goods, which are mostly imported, uh, from food prices and from energy prices. And, and those are both global factors. So there is a risk here that the bank ends up raising interest rates dramatically, causing a sharp slowdown in, in Canadian GDP growth or even an outright recession, yet doesn't achieve its inflation target because those global factors are still keeping uh, consumer price inflation pretty high. And, you know, when we think about how central banks raising interest rates, that's obviously not going to do anything at all for, for the situation in Ukraine, say, where a lot of the world's agricultural products come from. So that, that's really why people are now starting to, talk, starting to talk about this stagflation environment again, where, where central banks feel that they need to slow down economies, but really that's, that's not enough to keep get inflation back down as well. We'll see what the bank decides to do at its uh, meeting next month. As mentioned, uh, your latest uh, CapitalEconomics.com. Stephen, appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. All the best. Uh, Stephen Brown, Senior Economist for Canada with Capital Economics, CapitalEconomics.com. So as he sees it, uh, if the bank gets too aggressive, uh, that could help tip us into a recession. You know, so the bank needs to be careful about assessing the impact of these interest rate hikes. Because sending the housing market into a tailspin would certainly have an impact on Canada's GDP, which already seems to be slowing down, at least if you compare the fourth quarter of last year to the first quarter of this year. And he makes a, a really valid point about, you know, the source of all of this inflation, that uh, the, to the extent in which higher interest rates can tamper that, uh, it's, it's pretty minimal impact. 
that uh, so much of what's driving consumer price increases is, is beyond certainly the bank's control. Welcome back. This is Afternoons on 770 CHQR. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Our number here, 403-974-8255. Much more still to get to in the program this afternoon, but I uh, want to turn our attention to a familiar voice, a familiar face. Uh, Jeb Fink, a uh, veteran of three decades uh, the stand-up comedy scene, and of course, uh, over the past two decades, uh, has been a pretty visible presence in the Calgary media scene. He's going to be headlining this weekend at the Laugh Shop at the Blackfoot. LaughShopCalgary.com for more details. But joining us uh, on the line is the uh, aforementioned, uh, the one and only Jeb Fink. Jeb, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me on here. This is great. I do listen to you. I just, just, I guess I get to listen uh, to me now. Well, make it even sweeter then, won't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm not that conceited. That's good. Well, listen, first of all, I mean, how are things? I know, you know, it's obviously been a a very, um, I I don't know, tumultuous few years for for all of us. But uh, how are things in Jeb Fink's world, first of all? Uh, You know what? I'm, it's okay. It's not as good as it was, but it's, you know, better than some. So I don't. I don't feel uh, at all picked on. I have a food business that's been able to keep running because it's a necessary evil, I think, is how they worded it. Maybe not quite like <laughs> I that. But, uh, I mean, you got to eat. So uh, the food vendors were able to stay open at Crossroads Market. And those of I mean, it was all, it was delivery and pickup in the parking lot. But, you know, I stayed open, but, you know, I have friends that their restaurants didn't make it. And I feel really bad for them. So all in all, I've been pretty lucky. Now that, by the way, that's Jeb's joint, it's called, right? Yep. Which has nothing to do with with cannabis, just in case anyone's wondering. But this is like, it's like pasta, you're in the pasta sauce business. This is an interesting side hustle. First of all, where did that even come from? Uh, well, I've always cooked. I cooked when I was, I don't know, like 13 years old. I i think I informed my mother I didn't feel she was a great cook. <laughs> so she told me, then you need to learn how to cook. So I did. And uh, it turns out she was a good cook. I just was really picky as a kid. But, uh, yeah, I've cooked ever since I was really young. I was a grandma, two grandmothers that cooked really well, one professionally. And uh, I just kind of learned a lot from them. And the base of the pasta sauce is from my dad's mom. And, uh, you know, I just kind of went from there. And I had a barbecue sauce company for years. And, uh, yeah, then I just morphed into this. And, you know, I needed something to amuse me. I'm not a good person to have free time on my hands. And to be brutally honest, I went through uh, a bit of a bout, and, you know, this was my uh, sobriety, keep yourself busy business. Yeah. So it's it worked for that. Right on. So, yeah, and obviously that, that's, I mean, it's more than just a hobby, obviously, but it's its an interesting passion. Let's talk about uh, the stand-up comedy. As mentioned, you've been doing stand-up for like three decades now, uh, so you've kind of seen it all over those years. How, how did you get into stand-up in the first place? Let's go back a bit. <laughs> you know what? I, I, uh, I was working in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho at a gas station. And uh, it wasn't a job that I was particularly good at. It was like a fast gas kind of place. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, there was there was a guy that came in and he delivered kind of a local uh, sort of an Avenue magazine type paper for people to pick up, and uh, I would sit there and turn the pumps on and off him and, and scream at me. <laughs> and I would tell them, I don't know, it's on. You know, they'd go back out, and I'd let it run for a little while, and then turn it on. And this guy said, you know, um, we're uh, we're having a comedy competition. You should get into it. Oh, really? And so I did. And that was, uh, I was meanly funny from the, from the beginning. So, uh, and I entered the comedy competition, and uh, I came in uh, 11 out of uh, 30. I think it was 30, 35, something like that. And I'd never been on stage before. So I thought, well, this is easier than running a gas station, <laughs> which it wasn't. Right. But it was certainly more fun. So uh, that's what I did. I started doing stand-up and just, did, you know, you just keep working at it. And I think I hit it in a very, uh, I hit the perfect storm because it was really just starting to take off. And there were more and more comedy clubs all over North America and all over the world. And, uh, you know, lucky timing. And uh, I like to write. I always wrote when I was younger, wrote stories and stuff. So it was kind of a natural progression. But, um, yeah, things have changed recently. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but as you mentioned, I mean, you know, you, you were working in the United States. You were born in Los Angeles, of course. And, you know, there was a, the whole comedy and American in Canada kind of based uh, on your life. So what, what brought you to Canada yeah. in the first place then? Uh, my second ex-wife. Yeah. Sadly, my second wife, now ex-wife. Um, she actually, I met her through the business. She was running um, comedy clubs all over Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC, you know, Manitoba. She kind of ran one nighters and she did a lot of that and uh, pretty much, you know, love at first sight. And, uh, um, you know, then we decided to live. Well, I would have lived in LA probably, but she did not want to move. She had her own business that was going on. And she's from Edmonton originally, but. Uh, I wanted to live in Calgary um, because there was an international airport. And at that time, if you left Edmonton, you had to stop in Calgary right, to get exactly. a real so, so it was like, oh, no, I'm not going to do a 26-minute skip flight to catch another flight to catch a flight. And uh, that's how we ended up here. It was a good, good, clean start for the two of us. And... You know, the the city has always been really good to me and the, the people that live here. And, you know, I've done the Stampede a few times on the Grandstand show. And, you know, I, as you said, I've done a lot of TV. And uh, now I'm too old for TV, Rob. <laughs> Yes. It doesn't, doesn't take long. That's I'm what's good about radio. radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nobody can see me. But it's... They're not going to sit around going, I can't listen. He sounds old. Well, but it's fun. I mean, you know, Calgary's a city where everyone's from from somewhere, right? And but but you know, Pretty for much. you as an American, and and you're kind of now gradually becoming a, a Canadian. You know, this this starts to become home. Do you, do you kind of feel like you're existing in two worlds? Or you kind of feel like you're, you're you're neither an American or a Canadian at some point. What's that identity like for you? 
No, you know, I I feel like I'm a Canadian. I um, when I was a kid in in the states, it was a totally different world there, and it has progressively, in my personal opinion, gotten more dicey and more dicey and more dicey and mm-hmm. less reasonable, less sane, and. Um, uh, you know, as in nobody on the planet really needs an assault rifle except, oh, I don't know, someone that's going to assault people. Right. And it it just, all of it seems so unreasonable to me that, uh, I mean, this is, this is my home now. And I think there, I think there's a balance. Like, I mean, I, I still own some guns back in the States. I'd never brought them up here. They'll be, uh, you know, handed down to my sons and grandsons mm-hmm. i mean if you're a hunter and he ended up graduating high school in Coeur d'Alene, idaho and when i was in school in high school in Coeur d'Alene, i would be willing to bet during the fall probably a third of the cars and trucks in the parking lot had guns in them wow. <laughs> and that was because that but it was because people were going to go hunting after school yeah and they went hunting, and um, whatever they shot, they ate. And um, it was just a more sensible. And nobody, I, I didn't know anybody. We had, we had some people, I'm sure people from my class would say that I was one of the kind of wacky guys. But I never had anyone that I was afraid of to, to the degree that kids going to school are afraid of other students it's ridiculous i i don't i don't understand it and other than the republicans just want to win i don't see how they can sensibly say it's okay to own assault rifles you know if 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 you are like an adamant canadian gun owner and you're safe and sane that's great if you are on the radicalized other side of that please don't buy a ticket to the show. I don't want to hear about it. You're not. You're not going to convince me that you're right. Well, you know, yes. it's, kind of, it's like the anti anti vaxxers. I I posted something on Facebook, and I said, "Hey, on the off chance they're right, what do you say we all put on a mask today?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, do I? I I wear a mask. I have a food business. You definitely a requirement. a requirement. Um, I just thought that these decisions know way more than me, or probably way more than anyone I can find on uh, on the internet. <laughs> and I just I can't believe how polarizing that whole thing was for for everyone in both countries. I mean, oh yeah. I, I really, I don't understand, and I don't understand the anger. And, you know, if you want to have a, a legal, sensible protest, I'm all for that. If you want to block an international border, no, I'm out. Yeah, it, I mean, but, it's interesting. You know, from a comedian's perspective, too, in, in terms of navigating all of this, right? Because it's, 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 you know, it's everywhere, it seems. But at the same time, right, I mean, it's, it's important for people to have a distraction to just get out and and have a night where you just you know you're just having a laugh right and you kind of forget about all the troubles and divisiveness in in the world so how do you navigate all of that as a comedian 
Well, I, I don't, I'm not doing as much about all of the mask wearing. And people are, are amazing because they have very short memories. So, so people would, the first time I worked the club after it opened, I think I was the third act in, and pretty much a good solid 45 minutes about uh, the vaccinations, uh, wearing masks, Black Lives Matter. I, I, and I, I tend to be, I want to be as, as immediate and topical as I possibly can. Yeah. And I figure, in general, everything that I'm thinking about, other people are thinking about, which I guess makes me fairly self-centered. But I, they don't have to agree with me. But I, I like to think they're at least thinking about those things. Right. So I try to base my show on current events. Well, it's going down Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, at the Laugh Shop at the Blackfoot Laugh Shop, Calgary.com. Jeb Fink, great catching up with you. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Oh, thank you. And uh, we'll see you folks down there. No masks. You're safe. Don't worry. That's right. There you go. That's uh, Jeb Fink has mentioned uh, on stage this weekend at the Laugh Shop. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.